So Matt, uh, you're you're taking some vacation. Are you going to do the appropriate thing and actually actually disconnect? I am. Yeah, for once. Oh, Mainly good. because uh, the place that I'm going is fairly remote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I'm thinking that the actual time with internet will be very low. I loved your Instagram story the other day where you were like, "Oh, going for a week without my laptop. How will I?" Come? Yeah, I I do always pretty much always take my laptop. I I am. Just taking my iPad this time, so it'll it'll be interesting. I actually do that though. Like I have, I bought I bought the uh, USB C cable that connects to my camera, and I bring my iPad Pro, and that's all. When I go on vacation now, that's all I bring, and I download all my pictures to my iPad, and it's great. I think it's it's really nice and portable. I've got the old iPad Pro. I keep on wanting to upgrade, but I'm like, what is there apart from the charging pencil being better? Oh, see, I don't even use the pencil. I just like this form factor with the keyboard. I never had a keyboard before. Ah. So the Apple Folio keyboard is really, really nice. Boy, this is really just another Apple fanboy podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. I was going to say, I have the iPad mini too, so I'm like well out date oh, here. We got one of those. Yeah, we let the kids use it. <laughs> the kids version. <laughs> got one of those. We use it as a photo frame. I basically keep it so I can watch things in the bath. And if it falls in the bath, I do not care. <laughs> I mean, you might you might die, but... Yeah, yeah exactly. Just don't care about the iPad. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I don't have a bath very often. I'm not a bath person. I'm definitely a bath person. Do you have a waterproof case for it? Like, do no. you, you just, Or you just don't care? You're like, who cares? I just literally don't care. I have one of those um, bath caddy things that goes over... So you can like put your drink on it and whatever. So I just, I literally just put it over the bar. You drink and watch TV in the bar. Oh my God. I live the life. Come out four hours later from a freezing cold bath, completely pruned. That's what I can't stand about them. They're just so cold. Like I I, just keep topping them up. You can run hot water. Do you have hot water where you live? Yeah, but then you get hot. (laughs) Run the kettle, pour it in. (laughs) <laughs> you just call on the servants to, to, to draw you the bath, right? It's just like, uh, Master Davy would like his bath. Now. It's just the rest of the bath is cold, but I end up with boiling hot feet. <laughs> I think you're doing you just it wrong. doing baths right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I think can jump into some Watchtower Weekly. Yeah, so our first one comes, uh, Tripwire.com is reporting that a denial of service attack, a distributed denial of service attack that knocked Telegram secure messaging service offline was linked to the Hong Kong protests. Uh, an attack which targeted users of the Telegram app might be linked to the recent violent protests in Hong Kong. Who precipitated such an attack? People that are anti-protest? I think people that were trying to, yeah, kind of interfere with the protests to stop people, you know, getting to where they needed to be. I think it's just one of the theories in circulation, though, and I don't think at the moment they've kind of found out who actually was behind the attack. Yeah, the the interesting thing is when there's a protest like this and the the government is really against what they're they're protesting about and all that kind of stuff usually they just knock out 3g in that area right like they just take down cell cell towers because yeah i mean people were using uh you know whatsapp and and telegram and all these things to to kind of plan where the next crowd was going to build up it's uh yeah it's it's certainly an, an interesting one to take down an entire service just for just for that, if, if that is actually what happened. Yeah, I really like the response from uh, Telegram, though. I think they put it up on their Twitter account in like a series of tweets. They kind of humorously described what a DDoS attack is. So they said, a DDoS is a distributed denial of service attack. Your servers get gazillions of garbage requests, which stop them from processing legitimate requests. 
Imagine that an army of lemmings just jump the queue at McDonald's in front of you and each of them is ordering a Whopper. <laughs> but yeah, they, they carry on tweeting saying, the server is busy telling the Whopper lemmings they came to the wrong place, but there are so many of them that the server can't even see you to try and take your order. This makes a DDoS similar to the zombie apocalypse. One of the Whopper lemmings just might be your grandma. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. There's a bright side. All of these lemmings are are there just to overload the servers with extra work they can't take away your big mac and coke your data is safe yeah that's a pretty that's a pretty good description of it and a, and a pretty <laughs> good way of, of handling it i've not heard of telegram before is it is it uh, like a whatsapp style um so it's different in that it's obviously a messaging app but it creates a mesh network using bluetooth um, and peer-to-peer oh. wi-fi allowing you to communicate even when they don't have cellular signal um or internet access oh Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, that would be a reason. Like, that would be the reason that they took it down, right? Yeah, they're really popular amongst downloads in Hong Kong and places like that. And yeah, this app was being widely used by protesters. So the next one is a is a really interesting one. And it's similar to the, uh, I think we had a story on Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, but this one is uh, the Florida city pays hackers $600,000 in ransom to save computer records. Oh. oh. When we talked about the Baltimore story, I said, you know, you can tell that, that the city of Baltimore is currently sort of scrambling and running the numbers. Like, can they fix this problem themselves for less than the hundred thousand dollars that the that the hackers are asking for? And then once if they do pay it, there's no guarantee that the hackers are actually going to release the system. Yeah, they've since refused to pay the hackers. I think they were demanding about seventy five thousand oh, dollars. OK. And yeah, I think it's come out now that they've they've refused so. but this this one the the florida the riviera beach city council has uh, has voted unanimously to, to pay the hackers demands what do you think the median age is of someone who sits on the oh. riviera beach city council <laughs> i i would imagine it's up there <laughs> yeah uh this the council already voted to spend almost a million dollars on new computers and hardware after hackers captured the city's system three years ago yeah what at that point don't you just like yeah. Un- unplug all the computers, throw them in the dumpster, and put new ones down. Just be like, you know what? This is this is fine. We'll just. Or you teach this. the you know seventy four year old man that's in, in charge of this how to actually you know have good password habits. I think this comes back to what we were talking about with um, Dr. Jess Barker that we interviewed earlier on this week, where we were saying about how you know people aren't often proactive about this kind of stuff and it's only once there's an attack that they're like oh let's spend a million dollars on computer and hardware they don't you know ever foresee this sort of thing and get those security kind of things in place beforehand and i think once it kind of gets to this stage there's nothing you can really do and it's just such a shame that people aren't thinking proactively about this yeah for sure and of course this is another wanna cry right this is this is another one where they're using the the popular ransomware piece of software but um, I think this probably goes up there in in one of the highest amounts paid out to hackers using this. Hacking uh, municipalities is becoming a very lucrative business, it turns out. Yeah, I could certainly imagine similar stuff happening over here because I imagine uh, the computers that run this city are pretty terrible, I'd imagine. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and of course, all of these things are going to be underfunded. Yeah. Uh, spokeswoman Roseanne Brown said there are no guarantees that once the hackers receive the money, they will release the records. The FBI on its website says it, quote, doesn't support paying off hackers, but many government agencies and businesses do. Uh, they're, of course, demanding Bitcoin, 
So, you know, there was some Googling over there to try and figure out what the hell a Bitcoin is <laughs> and how do you get one. So. <laughs> so I think this brings us to a new part of the show. We've gotten rid of the big topic and brought something in that allows us to sort of tell a new story, but in different parts. So each of us have uh, kind of gone away and, and researched a different part of a famous hack. And then we're all going to kind of ask each other questions. Yeah. And this week, we're going to go through the Yahoo hack. It is the biggest this hack. the biggest hack of one company. One of the largest data breaches. In the history of the world in terms of scale. Uh, with regard to scale, the biggest hack in history. Yahoo's had an information breach that's affected almost... 500 million. 500 million. Almost a half billion accounts. So how did the Yahoo hack start like what's what was sort of the the precipitating event for so this the hack began with a spear phishing email sent in early 2014 to a yahoo company employee it's unclear how many employees were targeted at the time and how many emails were sent but as we know it only takes one person to click on the link and it happened um, once the hackers started poking around the network they looked for two prizes yahoo's user database and the account management tool which is used to edit that database so they wouldn't lose access they installed a back door on the yahoo server that would allow them to access and in december they stole a backup copy of yahoo's database and transferred it to their own computer and the database contained things like phone numbers password challenge questions and answers and crucially password recovery emails and a cryptographic value unique to each account. So they didn't actually get passwords. Like, how did they access each account? So it's those last two items that enabled the hackers to target and access the accounts of certain users. The account management tool didn't allow for simple text searches of usernames. So instead, the hackers turned to recovery email addresses. Um, once the accounts have been identified, the hackers were able to use stolen cryptographic values called nonces to generate access cookies through a script that had been installed on the Yahoo server. Those cookies, which were generated many times throughout 2015 and 2016, gave the hackers free access to a user email account without the need for a password. So how many accounts did they compromise? The roughly 500 million accounts they potentially had access to, they only generated cookies for about 6,500. So clinical was the attack that when Yahoo first approached the FBI in 2014, it went with worries that only 26 accounts had been targeted by hackers. And it wasn't actually until late August 2016 that the full scale of the breach began to become apparent and the FBI investigation significantly stepped up. So I, I've been looking at kind of what was wrong at the time and the, the spin of all this. So the FBI investigation actually only started because Yahoo credentials and accounts were going up for sale on the, the dark net and rumors started flying after that. It, it really took Yahoo to discover the attack, like years. As for the, the spear phishing email that was sent, uh, I think it was early 2014 and Yahoo didn't go public with that until December 2016. So it was only then that the news outlets started to really pick up the story and Yahoo advised users to even change their passwords. By this time, like Yahoo had no indication of who who was behind the attack. Uh, news outlets were picking this up, you know, really delayed and asking why it had taken so long for Yahoo to e e even mention this publicly. 
This happened in 2013. It is coming upon late 2016. This has happened some time ago. How is it possible that we're just hearing about this? Why are we only hearing about this now? But why are we just hearing about it now? Is it fair to assume at this point that Yahoo has been sitting on this information? There was even speculation that Yahoo had even tried to cover up the breach because they were looking for merger partners and, you know, they were concerned about their sale and stock price and stuff. The U.S. senator commented on this at the time, saying that as law enforcement and regulators examine the incident, they should investigate whether Yahoo have concealed the knowledge of this breach in order to artificially bolster its valuation pending acquisition by Verizon at the time. Oh, that's right. I forgot that all of this sort of happened around the time of the acquisition. And so there was all of that speculation yeah, that like... It's all very dodgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Verizon asked for a $350 million discount <sighs> on the original $4.8 billion deal uh, to acquire Yahoo. Which is, you know, okay, I think. <laughs> that's, yeah. Like, it's justified. Well, I wonder how they calculated that. That would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my god! It's uh, the the deal eventually went through with this reduction. But a lot of people were really rightly asking, you know, can we trust Yahoo? And and criticizing them for for not prioritizing privacy or security and having enough money to investigate security and encryption. You know, some some news sources and some security researchers described their encryption methods as essentially obsolete. Oh. Gosh, it's one of those things where they just left it. They're just like, well, it was, it's fine. Like things are fine. We did this, you know, did 12 years ago and everything seems okay today. So no big deal. Yeah, that's bananas. So, I mean, who is interested in doing this and, and why would they do so, it? So in terms of who was responsible, it was discovered to be a state funded attack by Russia. The hacked users and victims included an assistant to the deputy chairman of Russia, an officer in Russia's Ministry of Internal Affairs, and a trainer working in Russia's Ministry of Sports. That's that's a fascinating one. Others belong to Russian journalists, officials of states bordering Russia, and U.S. government workers. Uh, so in March of 2017, the FBI officially charged four men including two that work for Russia's Federal Security Services, the FSB, uh, Alexei Belon, a Latvian hacker hired by the Russian agents, and Karim Baratov, who were amongst those found guilty. Today we are announcing the indictment of four individuals responsible for the 2014 hack into the network of email provider Yahoo. The defendants include two officers of the Russian Federal Security Service, an intelligence and law enforcement agency of the Russian Federation, and two criminal hackers with whom they conspired to accomplish these intrusions. The defendants targeted Yahoo accounts of Russian and U.S. government officials, including cybersecurity, diplomatic, and military personnel. Beratov originally claimed not guilty to the hacking charges. However, he later pled guilty, admitting to hacking into at least 80 email accounts on behalf of Russian contacts. He was charged with nine counts of hacking and in May 2018 sentenced to five years in prison and ordered to pay $2.25 million to his victims. I, I can't imagine they're ever going to see any of that money. No. <laughs> <laughs> but arguably, Yahoo are largely to blame for not having effective security measures in place and for not investing enough in the privacy of their customers. So the, the interesting thing here is that, like, you know, the, the argument that always goes around of, like, I've got nothing to hide and also, like, I'm not really a target for this kind of stuff. Like the, these guys compromised nearly a billion accounts. I, I think, you know, the, the number actually rose to a, a billion. Like none of these people were were the target. You know, you're, you're, 
never really the target in these things, but it doesn't mean that you're still, you, you know, your account isn't compromised. That that backdoor that they kind of created, I, I think it's, it was only a matter of time that other people would find that, let alone, you know, Yahoo find that and, and close it off. But like, you know, when, when we leave backdoors in stuff like this, they, they are going to get discovered. It's like what we were talking about with the American visas and the social media um, requests last week. Things like this is just like a, finding a needle in a haystack. They'll just try and get as much data and information possible, but there's only a very small target. And in that way, the small target is a terrorist or terrorism. But it doesn't mean that you aren't damaged in some way. Yeah. So I, I think I know the answer to this question, but how did they handle the the disclosure to their users like all these years later (laughs) well the short answer is pretty badly um so in the eyes of like press experts and its users it took yahoo too long to discover the breach so it was around two years so it took them too long to go public with it and provide those affected with any information they also came under criticism for not implementing improved security features soon enough A lot of people saying this is the result of a choice at Yahoo, right? It is hard to protect information. You have to encrypt it. You have to hire really expensive engineers. It doesn't show up in the quarterly earnings reports. It's not something that has an immediate benefit. And that Yahoo chose not to prioritize this to the extent they should have. Other companies hired every security engineer they could. Yahoo did not. They had other priorities, and now Yahoo is paying the consequences. And it looks like the encryption technology that Yahoo is using internally was obsolete. I have to believe that my information is safe. Yeah. There is no way now that I could believe it. So in addition to this, after Yahoo was identified by Edward Snowden as a frequent target for state-sponsored hackers in 2013, it took the company a full year before hiring a dedicated chief information security officer. I mean, that's just terrible. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not like they're acting quickly on No. I mean, they should have had someone in place beforehand, really. But it gets more crazy from this point. This is what really shocked me. So it was revealed in a more recent investigation in 2017 that Yahoo actually knew an intrusion had occurred back in 2014, but allegedly botched its response. Um, So the committee found that Yahoo's security team and senior executives actually knew that a state-sponsored actor had hacked certain user accounts back in 2014 but even as the company took some remedial actions some senior executives allegedly failed to comprehend or even investigate the incident further yeah that is pretty terrible and experts have also pointed out that yahoo only up until the most recent breaches um, have not forced affected users to change their passwords um, a move that many say have driven users away from the service and and we all know why they're now, you know, they're now disclosing breaches and telling people to change their passwords. And it's it's because of mandatory disclosure, right? Like with uh, with GDPR and other laws similar to that, you you have to disclose this stuff. Yeah, I I feel like GDPR came around almost because of data breaches like this. Yeah, the the mandatory disclosure and and you know the more companies getting bug bounties and and get get these holes kind of fixed up and and get the security community involved. I feel better about security now than I, you know, looking back in 2013, how how things were. Yeah, I think it's a bit more, dare I say, sexy to be um, up on security now than back in 2014. I think 
a lot of people are starting to take their privacy and security a lot more seriously and become more aware of it. So when companies are a bit blasé about it and seem like they don't care about your data, I think that definitely puts off users. Yeah, I mean, the the security awareness takes us very seamlessly into our into our guest interview for this week. Okay, so today on the show we have Dr. Jessica Barker. She is the founder of Sygenta HQ on Twitter and a chair of Club CISO, a leading expert in the human nature of cybersecurity. Hi, Jess. Hi. Can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a bit more about the kind of work you do? Sure, I'd love to. So I, I'm one of the co-founders of Sygenta. I founded the company with my husband. I've been working in cybersecurity for the last nine or so years, always worked on the human side. So what I am really passionate about is understanding awareness, behaviours and culture when it comes to cybersecurity. You know, what do people understand about cybersecurity and about about using technology and the risks? What are the behaviors? You know, where are our messages getting through and where are they not? And and also one of the things I do is work with companies to understand their culture around cybersecurity and whether that's positive or negative or what we can do to drive a stronger and more secure culture in organizations. So I'm... I absolutely love the, the work that I do. And at Sygenta, we take um, a holistic approach to cybersecurity. So we look at it from the human angle as well as the technical and the physical angle. Yeah, that's really cool. I always like the the human aspect of, of security. I, I kind of find it more fascinating because, you know, the technical side, it's usually either someone has let their guard down or something hasn't been updated. Like <laughs> that's a that's a massive generalization, but it, it it tends to be you know the the human aspect of the the stories and and kind of how we implement software and and how humans create software and and the vulnerabilities that I always find much more interesting. So this is a fairly big and an open question. So kind of take it any way you want. But what do you think security looks like currently in in two thousand and nineteen? Before we talk about like where we want it to go and where we want to raise awareness. What, what do you think it currently looks like? So I think we're at the point with security where actually awareness is really high. I think we have been um, able to successfully speak about this stuff in a way that has engaged the media. I think there are so many cybersecurity stories making the news in our um, you know, mainstream TV programs, dramas, um, films. People are hearing about cybersecurity an awful lot. And we've had you know, big organizations doing awareness raising activities for quite a while now. So I would say awareness is actually pretty high. But what hasn't followed is understanding necessarily or change in behaviors. So people, I think, understand that cybersecurity is important, you know, that there are cyber criminals out there hacking companies, stealing data, stealing money that it's an issue that is important to businesses and to individuals in their personal lives. But people don't necessarily understand it much deeper than that. They maybe don't understand how it impacts them or why they need to have um, strong behaviors. And so we haven't necessarily seen a a change in behaviors that has matched that raising of understanding um, and awareness in particular. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like we have the basis for it, but I, I still think this kind of uh, elusive dark image of a, a person leaning over a computer in a, in a hoodie and, you know, maybe some matrix signals coming in there. <laughs> like that is still every time a hack or, or something comes into the newspapers, like that's the image that they use. I think a, a large amount of, of the the issues of understanding really do come from imagery yeah that's very true i think you know it can be a hard thing to visualize so as you say we do see the same kind of stereotypical images being used which doesn't help with some of the myths that surround cybersecurity. so people also i think engage with technology but don't necessarily understand how it works so if you are the victim of a crime in the physical world then you'll you'll know about it but people can be the victim of cybercrime and not realize it um, or not necessarily understand how for example clicking a link in an email could possibly compromise the machine so we're dealing with a subject that can seem very intangible and very you know, fluffy and and something that people can't really see and feel and put their hands around. And that means that we need to explain it in such a way that is accessible to people. I think also we haven't seen the change in behaviors because sometimes what we're asking of people is actually too difficult. And passwords would be a great example. You know, we haven't seen people take up secure passwords and use a unique password for every account because if we're asking them to just remember them, then actually that's something that very few people are able to do, you know, with enough complexity and uniqueness to be secure. So partly it's that we're actually putting too much of a burden on individuals using technology. And partly it's that we're not actually explaining the technology and the risks in a way that people can comprehend. Yeah, for us, it's a, a constant balance between uh, usability and, and, and security. You know, we, we add an extra factor. It, it does become more difficult. You know, it might be easier to kind of show that we're secure and all these kind of things. But yeah, it's it's still that, that additional thing that you rely on the user kind of understanding. Sure. And, and we come up against this all the time as well, doing awareness raising, particularly sort of working with um, the general public who maybe haven't been through awareness raising in corporations. And, um, and sometimes people will want perfection. You know, they will want that silver bullet they will want that product or, or something that will just be perfect and make them secure. And then it's talking to them about the fact that actually you do have to balance usability and security sometimes. And there is no one thing that's going to suddenly make them secure. Do you think we need to be more optimistic about cybersecurity to increase the impact or does this kind of scaremongering around things like this actually work? I'm a big believer in the importance of, of being optimistic about cybersecurity. And this is because most people respond um, and engage more with a message when it is positive and optimistic. So research from neuroscience um, carried out kind of over the last decade has shown that there is a bias among most people towards being optimistic about their personal lives. So um, the neuroscientist Dr. Tali Sharot uh, has led a team of um, researchers who have explored this around the world and found that while most people maybe look around them and think that, you know, 
the world is not is not going in a great place. They will think that actually they themselves are going to be just fine. And this is proven true of about 80% of the population. Um, for example, this is why people never think that they're going to, you know, get ill or get divorced or have financial trouble in future. We always think that, that we're going to be okay. And I think this is really relevant to cybersecurity and our communications, because I think this can be at the root of why people think they're never going to get hacked. You know, why would hackers want my data? It's this optimism. So when we engage in talking about cybersecurity always in a very negative way, I think that people actually just don't listen to that because they think it doesn't apply to them. So for me, it's really important to be more optimistic. And I've seen this, this work in my awareness raising training and when I'm communicating with people in businesses, if they take some of these fundamental steps that we talk about around protecting their data, that will protect them from the overwhelming majority of threats out there. And when I speak in a more empowering way, when I frame these messages in a more positive rather than negative way, then I find that is much more engaging and people actually really want then to listen to what I'm saying and to act on the recommendations. But when we drive our communications with fear, what we're actually doing then is trying to appeal to people's emotions. And there has been a a great deal of research into the psychology of fear and into what works and what doesn't. And if we are not careful with how we frame a fear appeal, then actually research over the last kind of 60 years has shown that we're in danger of driving more negative behaviors. If we try to simply scare people um, into behaving a certain way, then often we drive those people into ignoring what we're saying or believing that we're exaggerating the threat or becoming so terrified that actually they're put off engaging in the technology because they're so scared about it. So when we are talking about something scary, I think we have a, a responsibility to ensure that we talk about that in a way that is respectful to the, to the psychology and the fact that, you know, we need to combine that with an empowering message for people to actually engage with the dangers um, and the, the true threats rather than simply engaging with the emotions. Because if they only engage with the emotions, they're likely to not actually follow our recommendations. They're likely to find a way to try and sort of psychologically avoid that. Again, I think it comes down to the some of the imagery that, that we continually use for these things. And I, I think that, yeah, just doesn't help. It makes people believe that, oh, that, that's not going to happen to me. And that's, you know, what, what, what could I have of value? Um, but I think as soon as it actually happens... You, you get this very acute sense of, oh, okay, like this, all these things are actually connected and, and that's yeah, pretty it's, terrible. It's one of the unfortunate things, I think, with cybersecurity is that often it does take a breach or an incident before people realize that this does relate to them. And I agree. I think it's, it's partly because of how we communicate this. So often um, it, it does unfortunately take someone becoming a victim or or seeing someone that they relate to or a company that they relate to uh, becoming a victim before people realize that actually this is a threat that unfortunately can impact them as well. And this is something I find that's very effective uh, when done the right way with awareness raising is 
giving people almost the experience of of having been in a, a breach without having to go through it. So, for example, you know, tabletop exercises with um, with executives where they kind of do a a playthrough of what would happen if they were breached or. Um, awareness raising sessions that have live demonstrations of spear phishing attacks or, or password cracking, things that actually demystify this for people. Yeah, all, all that kind of awareness training sounds so interesting to me, but it's it's always interesting to look at it from kind of square one rather than react. Yeah, to it. we find actually sort of doing those awareness raising sessions where you show people, you know, what can happen, for example, if they click uh, a malicious link and show them, you know, walk them through that attacker and victim side, actually showing them also, unfortunately, how easy it can be for someone to compromise a machine or a network and the fact that it can just take a few commands, um, that it isn't necessarily something that has to be done by an elite hacker. Um that that really opens people's eyes because you're not just talking to them in theory. You're not just telling them like, yeah, this, you know, this is what could happen. You're really showing them. That's awesome. So if we were to, to have this awareness training today and and you could give us one security tip or practice that you live by and and that we should all do, uh, what would that kind of be? Uh, what would that closing kind of empowerment sure. be? So for me, I always leave people with the takeaways. And uh, and if there was only one thing, that would be great. <laughs> usually there's a few. And usually it is things like, you know, beware of the links you click on. And if you're unsure of an email or a text or whatever it is, then go away and check with the source. Manage passwords carefully. For me, that comes back to using a password manager because I find that's the, the best way of, of trying to have secure and unique passwords and all of this stuff actually for me comes back to the one thing that I would say to people which is having a healthy level of vigilance this isn't about sort of being scared or being paranoid but it's about understanding that unfortunately the threat is real but there are simple steps that you can put in place and it just takes a little bit of time to do that but once you have done that then you're able to engage in technology and reap all the benefits of you know the internet and online communications feeling confident that you've taken all the steps you can to protect yourself as much as you're able to do so that's great all right so where can people find out more about you or follow you on twitter or learn more about the awareness training that you so do? i um, i'm very engaged on twitter that's always a great place to find me and you can follow me on my handle at dr jessica barker and you can find out more about what we do at Sygenta by taking a look at sygenta.co.uk. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you so much for welcoming me on the show. All right. Well, it is time for my favorite segment of every week. Uh, it is time for What the Phrase. Anna, what do you have for us this week? Well, I have a Japanese phrase for us this week. Oh, are you going to is... say it in Japanese? Oh, I wish. Okay. (laughs) So in English, the Japanese phrase is a frog in a well does not know the great sea. I mean, this is how I live my life. In a well? I mean, not in a well, but like I I, I kind of I don't want to know what happens widely in the world sometimes. (laughs) I I like living in my little well. Yeah. Your little bubble. I'm assuming that's what it means. It means living in ignorance (laughs) or, you know, in isolation. Um, yeah, a little bit, but it's more of like a, a lesson 
than that it's sort of like a teaching is, is it like a parable almost like yeah it's, it's a- like a proverb oh so i've taken it as a way to lead your life and actually it's telling me i shouldn't <laughs> live my life like this yeah basically <laughs> oh this is great advice thanks japan <laughs> so it is there's more going on than you know try and see the big picture yeah matt you missed the point here good job that was fantastic <laughs> I, I flew straight by that point but i like that one yeah no that's a good one all right i think that's all we've got time for this week love you Rue. love you both love you Bye.